0: Let's pray. Lord, as we come around your word, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds, that you teach us, Holy Spirit, that you use this time, as you always do, to transform our minds, so that Jesus, so that God will be glorified as we learn together. Amen. so good morning today we are looking at a brief passage in acts acts chapter 16 uh, verses 11 to 15 so setting sail from troas we made a direct voyage to samothrace and the following day to neapolis and from there to philippi which is a leading city of the district of macedonia and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, if you, um, if you flick back to a couple of verses before this passage, you'll see something remarkable. Paul and his team haven't, they haven't gone to Macedonia on a whim. Paul's received this detailed vision from his lord and savior and it's this vision where this man from macedonia urges him to come and bring help to the area so paul's received a call how do we know there's a call on our lives how do you know that god has called you to this very point where you're sitting here in this building or listening to this podcast Is it all chance? A quirk of where you happened to be born. Nothing but fluke or your own choices. Let me blow your mind for a moment. Is that all right? God is omniscient, all-knowing. So he knows everything that has happened, everything that's happening now, and everything that will happen. Take that in for a moment. I barely know what I'm doing from one minute to the next, never mind anyone else. And our astonishing God knows it all, everything. Every person, every animal, every blade of grass, every atom. But more incredible than that, the truth, this truth about God's knowledge has always been true. So at the precise moment that he spoke and brought the universe into existence, he knew how it would all turn out from Adam and Eve to the second coming of Christ and beyond. He knew that we would arrive here today. He knew it, and he chose to make the universe in such a way that this would happen. He chose to make this universe, the one with you in it. He could have made a completely different universe without you or me in it, but he didn't. He made this universe deliberately. So you are not a mistake or a product of chance. God consciously set the universe in motion such that he knew your life was inevitable. So is there a call on your life? You bet there is. God's wise. He's loving. He's just. He is the perfect father. All the things that have happened in our lives, whether we view them as good or bad, they all happened exactly as He foresaw before any one of us was born. And there's more to this than God knowing who He would be and what we would do. The really brain stretching thing about omniscience is that God also intervenes in our lives, He gives us guidance. He directs our paths. He works miracles. So at the point that God made everything, he didn't simply know everything that you or I would do, he also knew everything that he would do, and how his intervention would affect the outcome. He knew Adam and Eve would eat the forbidden fruit from the tree he'd created, he knew his creation would suffer because of that and he knew that he would send Jesus to satisfy the requirements of his own justice and to make a way for his sinning, broken, fallen children to come back to their father. And you say, that's impossible, Rob. And I say, that's right, you're getting it. Impossible is God's specialty I look at my own life Uh, the journey that my wife and I are on includes caring for our two precious boys each with his own distinct needs and limitations and over the years several people have said to us I couldn't do what you do and some people have pitied us and I guess some people have been grateful that this journey of disability didn't happen to them and that's okay I wouldn't blame anyone for feeling that way. Because until you've walked a particularly difficult stretch, it can be hard to imagine how God can strengthen and support you in it and give you the grace to grow through it. And that's how it's been for us. God has been with us every step of the way, encouraging, guiding, intervening, weeping with us through the suffering and intervening miraculously according to his own wise counsel. God knew this would happen to my family, and he always knew how he would help us. He called us to this life. Last week we saw God directly intervening in the life of Paul through a vision given by the Holy Spirit. And the vision showed Paul the next steps that he should take on his mission to spread the gospel. And Paul paid attention to this vision, this dream. Is that an easy thing to do? To take a vision seriously? Maybe, maybe not. I know if I acted on every dream I had, my life would be a far bigger mess than it is now. How did Paul know that he should take this vision seriously? Well, he'd encountered the living Christ, he'd heard the voice of Jesus, he walked daily with his Saviour, and he recognised what he saw and heard. He wasn't curiously following a dream, Paul was following this vision with conviction, with a spiritual witness, with a sense that this was God's call, and that the wisest choice is always to obey. Do we think that Paul had moments of doubt? Did he wonder if he'd misinterpreted the dream, or that it was just his imagination? And even if he didn't have doubts before the journey, I wonder how he, he felt when they arrived in Macedonia. Now, Paul may have expected or hoped for confirmation as he reached the city of Philippi, but nothing. He gets there, No one greets him, and he can barely find any believers. There was no big welcome and no clear indication what he was supposed to do next. The apostles might have wondered what was going on. Had Paul been wrong after all? Of course, as Dave Scotland pointed out in his sermon a few weeks ago, apostles aren't infallible. Paul's habit in evangelizing was to go to the synagogue first. And remember what he wrote in Romans 1:16: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, so Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, would first approach the Jews. Uh, maybe God's chosen people would listen, and God willing, Paul would get their trust and their confidence. And after meeting the devout Jews, he would then turn his attention to the Gentiles in the area. But he hits a problem when he arrives in Philippi. It's a Roman colony in a Greek town. There is no synagogue. The only central place of meeting would have been for the worship of the Roman emperor and the false Roman gods. So in the face of this, it wouldn't be surprising if Paul had wondered whether the vision was just a product of eating too many matzo balls. That's a traditional Jewish dumpling, in case you were wondering. And this brings us to Acts 16, 11 to 15. As you remember, Acts was probably written by Luke, the physician. So in verse 11, Luke writes, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. This is the first time in Acts that Luke uses the word we. So, what follows is a first hand account. The writer was right there with Paul and Silas and possibly others. And verses 11 and 12 tell us that Paul and his fellow travelers had a very straightforward journey to Philippi. And when they arrived there, as Luke records at the end of verse 2, they stayed in the city some days. Some days. During those days of waiting, what do you reckon the apostles were up to? Do you think they hold themselves up in their lodgings, talking and praying? Or did they get out into the city, speaking to people, getting a sense of the area, looking for allies, sensing where the need for Christ might be greatest? We don't know. But I think we can safely assume there was prayer, there was reading of scripture, and there was activity. Now, what is this city where they're staying? A Roman colony, what does that mean? When the Romans conquered towns, they would tend to send hundreds or thousands of Roman citizens to live there, to strengthen and maintain the Roman position. And because of this military strategy, Latin, the Roman language, spread rapidly throughout the conquered territories, as did the laws and customs of Rome. When occupying a city, The imported citizens would often be retired Roman soldiers. They'd given their loyal service to the empire, and they were given land as a reward. And a colony had the highest status of any Roman town. Colonies were self-governing, they looked after themselves, and they were exempt from a lot of taxes. So this would give the town significance and self-importance. Philippi in the northeast of Greece was one of these colonies. By the time Paul got there, Philippi had a, a population of about 10,000. And 2,000 of those inhabitants would have been slaves. So, and since Philippi was a Greek city, it's likely that a lot of those slaves would have been native Greeks. So we have strong Greek and Roman influences in Philippi. And to flesh this out a bit, I'd just like to read you a bit of an article from the Society of Biblical Literature, very learned. Uh, This was written by Peter Oakes, who's a professor of New Testament studies at Manchester University. If you visit Philippi, he writes, make a point, and I know you're all planning to go to Philippi straight after this sermon, (laughs) make a point of going off the beaten track on the way from the town center to the theater. Follow the bottom of the rocky hillside you will find a gruesome sight, a set of three rock carvings of a woman in a short cloak, kneeling on the back of a deer whose head she is pulling back in order to slit its throat. This is a sanctuary of the goddess Artemis, or in her Roman guise, Diana. Continue to the theater and climb right up to the back of the auditorium, then onto the hillside beyond. Carved into the rocks are dozens of pictures of women. Many are representations of Artemis, here, seen standing with a bow. But many others appear to be women in normal clothes. Some are depicted with objects such as, uh, seen as associated women, such as mirrors or or distaffs. A distaff is a pole used to hold wool while spinning, apparently. Others hold babies. Both Artemis and the women tend to be framed by depictions of structures that look like temples. Who are these women? Some must be second or third century women because they are carved into rock faces left by quarrying for second century town development. Others are hard to date because they are carved into native hillside rock. Biblical scholars have put forward three interesting theories about the women's identities. Lillian Porterfay argues they are devotees of Artemis, seeking Artemis' protection and an Artemis-like existence in afterlife. Valerie Abramson argues they are priestesses of Artemis, and Jason Lamoureux, we all know Jason, Jason, argues they are devotees of Artemis using the inscriptions as thank offerings for successful birth. End quote. Why am I reading this? Judaism was a minority faith in Philippi, and Christianity was non-existent, and yet, this city became an important center for Christianity in the years after Paul's visit. And we can see this with the benefit of hindsight. What we can't do, because we're not God, is see the future. Right now, looking around our nation, we can see the general decline of Christian values. We're in the minority. Most people living in Britain aren't Christians. So it could be easy for us to lose hope. And it could have been easy for Paul and the apostles to lose hope. They were vastly outnumbered. But we see here in Acts the first shoots of a church congregation that would become precious to Paul and significant in the spread of the gospel. The book of Philippians is Paul's letter to the church that grows out of this journey to Philippi. Listen how he talks to them. Philippians 1, 3 to 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He loves this congregation. He loves them for them, and he loves them for their gospel work. We don't know what the impact will be of the short years that we spend on this planet. What we do know is God is always working in us and through us, and we can trust his plans. Our small congregation here, Freedom Church, it could fizzle out, It might grow until we number in the thousands, or it could be a center through which the gospel spreads in many directions. But whatever happens, whether we define it as success or not, we can be sure of this, that God is working out his promises, his purposes. So we don't need to be downcast if we seem to be struggling to grow in numbers, and equally, and listen carefully, equally, we mustn't be puffed up if new people are joining us every week. Either way, it would be arrogant and silly to think we have control over the outcome. Whatever becomes of this congregation, this small representation of the body of Christ, there is no sense in which we can take the credit, or the blame, for that matter. The only blame we might have held is for our sins. And Jesus has taken that blame away. We can be certain that when we lay down our lives for our Lord and Savior, he will use us. Whether we understand how he's using us or not. Did you know that when the Israelites were trying to leave Egypt and Pharaoh kept refusing to let them go, God was using Pharaoh? God was using Pharaoh. So God kept sending the plagues, and Pharaoh would see sense and tell the people to go. But then, moments later, what happens? If you read the story in the book of Exodus, you'll see this repeated phrase God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did it. Why God did that is a completely different sermon. Just notice that God was using Pharaoh as he chose. Pharaoh, who served idols and kept an entire nation enslaved, was the instrument of God. How much more, then, will he use us who actively surrender to him on a daily basis, saying, use me, Lord. We have to be careful with this, of course. If we're honest, we quite like it if God used us for some great purpose. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could preach to a gathering of thousands of people and everyone repented and believed in Jesus? We'd love that, wouldn't we? I confess I would. The thing is, when we surrender to God... We give up control, not just of the outcome, the destination, but also the means, the journey. It's all his. If God divinely ordains that I can best serve him by cleaning up after people for the rest of my days, there would be no better, no more honorable way I could serve him than by obeying. Remember the story of Naaman. You can read about it in 2 Kings 5. Um, Just briefly, Naaman was the Syrian military general who was stricken with leprosy. And the Syrians were enemies of Israel. And he visits Elisha the prophet in Israel in the hope that Elisha would heal him. And the prophet says, go bathe in the river Jordan, which is in Israel. And Naaman's incensed. This was beneath him. He had far better rivers in his own country. But Naaman's servants encouraged him to do it anyway. So Naaman swallowed his pride, bathed in the Jordan, and was healed. Naaman didn't know better than God. As Mary, the mother of Jesus, said to the servants at the wedding in Cana, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. You don't have to understand it. Just do it. And in that case, at the wedding, something they could never have predicted happened. Water miraculously turned into wine. It's not every day you see that, is it? Whatever he says, do it. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. There's no synagogue in the city, but it looks like the apostles heard a rumor that there was a gathering of faithful women outside the city. So it's a Roman colony. It's unlikely a synagogue would have been tolerated inside the city walls. And and in any event, a a synagogue would have required the presence of at least 10 Jewish men. That was the number uh, that was important for lots of different kinds of Jewish gatherings. And other than the apostles, there are no men in this scene. The incident concerns... Faithful women, not all of them are Jews by birth, who've gathered to worship God. And they possibly gathered near a body of water so that they had water available for ritual cleansing, very much part of the Jewish tradition. Verse 14, one who heard us was a a woman called Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul people die, I don't know if you know this, it was very expensive in those days and so Lydia's running quite a lucrative business and that was no mean feat for a single woman in those days. There's no mention of a husband and this is a highly patriarchal society so many single women and widows were completely dependent on others for their food and shelter. So Lydia is doing fairly well. But that is not what's so remarkable about her. It's far more remarkable that a convert to Judaism, living in a Greek city occupied by Romans, is finding a way to seek and serve God. And God extends grace to her. Now, this might sound like a crunching gear change, but stay with me. It will make sense, I promise. When you want to find the meaning of a word, what do you do? You look up in a dictionary or online, or you ask a knowledgeable friend. And whatever approach you take, you receive the definition of your mystery word by way of other words. That's what dictionaries do. They define words using other words. But what do you do if you don't know any words at all? When you're talking to a baby and you say, Oh, what a magnificent fellow you are. And the baby gives you this quizzical look. And you go, oh, yeah, right, magnificent. Do you give the baby a dictionary so we can look up the meaning of the word? No. The baby goes, guga. And you say, right, you've got it. A dictionary's no use to a baby when the baby knows no words. What on earth does this have to do with our passage, Rob? Well, I'm going to tell you. The work of salvation, would you say that a person does it, or God does it? So I'm standing next to this unclimbable tree. I have no ladder, and I'm looking up at the beautiful apples that are just out of reach. Can I say to myself, it's okay, I'll just climb on top of myself and pluck an apple? That's not going to work. And no more can we save ourselves. We can't climb on top of ourselves to get to heaven. We can't pull ourselves out of darkness. And we can't understand the contents of a dictionary when we have no words. Before conversion, we are dead in our sins and all we have at our disposal are more instruments of death So just as a person who has no language also has no use for a dictionary, a person who has not received Jesus will struggle to understand the gospel. There's a missing frame of reference. Do you see? I enjoy apologetics. Stay with me still. Apologetics really helps you to understand and explain your faith. And through the study of apologetics, I've learned something that uh, I believe, is a very compelling argument for the existence of God. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And you can look it up if you like. I'm not going to dwell on it now. You'll be relieved to hear. Kalam is spelled K-A-L-A-M. And it's one of the strongest arguments I've found for the existence of God. I've shared this argument with friends who are atheist, agnostic, or of other faiths. And how many of those people do you suppose have become Christians because of this argument? That's right, none. Even though it's a brilliant argument, they didn't accept it. Am I giving a dictionary to people who have no words? Am I asking a friend to climb on top of himself? Verse 14 says of Lydia, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Her conversion required two things. Firstly, it needed the obedient preaching of the word by Paul. But second, and far more important, it depended on God opening her heart. So God extended grace to Lydia, and through that grace... She was saved. Let's sum up where we've got to so far. So we've seen the call of God, both for Paul to go to Macedonia and for us to live our lives for God. And we've talked about the essential importance of obedience in response to a loving God who knows our every need. And we've understood that God's plans are perfect and that he intervenes in time to bring about his purposes. And we've seen how God opens hearts to receive his word. He orchestrates salvation. The call provokes obedience. Obedience brings us into line with his plans. And the outcome of his plans is salvation. And so we come to verse 15, the response to salvation. Acts 16, 15, and after she, Lydia, was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. God made it possible for Lydia to receive the gospel. He sent Paul to Macedonia and he opened Lydia's heart. Then Lydia, who was already devout, responded in submission to this message. And she was immediately baptized, which we know is both an act of obedience and a sacrament, a sacred event. That symbolizes the way God washes us clean from our sins. Lydia had authority over her household, and they too were baptized. These people were probably servants and workers and maybe other relatives, or people who were under her protection. And she opened her house and belongings to the apostles, showing them hospitality and generosity. There can be no doubt that she knew she'd received a priceless gift the gift of salvation. So extending hospitality to the apostles would have been a natural way for her to express her gratitude to them for their faithfulness and to God for his mercy. Jesus said, you can find this in Matthew 10, 8b, you received without paying, give without pay. Or in other translations, freely you've received, freely give. So what does this mean for us? What do we need to do? How should we respond? Firstly, seek and listen for the call of God, however that may come. Listen to Keith's sermon from last week. That gave you some ideas about how the call comes in your life. and he, He may guide you through a witness in your spirits, words from other people, circumstances he orchestrates, many different ways. But first and foremost... He'll guide you through His Word. Read the Bible every day. Read it as if your life depended on it. If you find it hard to read your Bible, do you know what you need to do? Read your Bible. (laughs) Second, determine to be obedient to that call. Don't jump the gun. God's timing isn't the same as ours. His is perfect, ours isn't. Still, prepare your heart to say yes to God. Yes to obedience, yes to repentance, to keeping the slate clean. Yes to service. Yes, no matter the cost. Thirdly, remember that his plans are perfect. They may make no sense to us. We may never understand in this life why he instructs us as he does but he knows what he's doing he's completely trustworthy the onlookers mocked Jesus hanging on the cross they didn't understand it was a perfect plan fourthly let God open your heart the work of salvation which is an ongoing work is the work of Christ his Holy Spirit in us don't resist Surrender. Sooner or later, you'll have to give in anyway. And lastly, respond enthusiastically as he opens your heart. A life of faith is a life of adventure. It can be a scary life at times, but I know of no other way to receive lasting peace, true joy, the satisfaction of being who you were made to be and doing what you were made to do. The true blessing of living a life of worship, adoring and honoring our Creator. All that God does, he is working for our good and for his glory. He is glorified when we answer his call. He's glorified when we respond with faithfulness, compassion and generosity. He's glorified when we acknowledge before everyone that his way Is the best way. It's the only way to be saved. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your care for us. We thank that you do intervene in our lives. You do speak to us. We may be bad at hearing, but you are good at speaking. Lord, show us what you would have us do, how you would have us be, And most of all, Lord, open our hearts. It's only you that can do that. We know that you are loving and kind and generous and have compassion on us. We know that you will do it. And for that, we praise you. Amen.